You give Teller from Jerusalem 20 minutes, and he'll give you the education of a lifetime. King of the storytellers and the Shakespeare of the Torah world, here is Rabbi Hanok Teller. Hello out there in podcast land. Welcome to our series where finally Teller from Jerusalem, which has been portraying the early struggle to build the state of Israel, has finally arrived at Israel's War of Independence in May, commencing in May 1948. On May 14, seven Arab armies converged on Israel. Lieutenant General Sir John Baggett Glubb, the British commander of the Transjordanian Arab Legion, recalled, quote, It was a sultry May day, with a haze of dust hanging over the roads. In the city of Amman, and in every village along the road, the people gathered, cheering and clapping wildly as each unit drove past. The flat roofs and the windows were crowded with women and children, whose shrill cries and wavering trebles could be heard above the roar and rattles of the vehicles, and the cheering of the crowds of men beside the road. The troops themselves were in jubilation. In some trucks, the soldiers were clapping and cheering. In others, they were laughing and waving to the crowds as they passed. The procession seemed more like a carnival than an army going to war. The Arab Chiefs of Staff met in Damascus to work out a united battle plan, but the scheme was never put into action. The Arab invasion plan also met logistical problems of distance and communication. Advanced knowledge of this extensive terrain was so grossly inadequate that the Syrian-Iraqi general staff lacked even a single military map of Palestine and were obliged to rely upon geographical charts used by school pupils and the advice of civilian guides. Coordination between the various Arab armies was non-existent. As Howard Sacher, in his very important book, The History of Israel, points out, had the Arabs known the paltry extent of the Jewish defenses, they would have been far less hesitant to invade. The Haganah mobilized barely 30,000 men and women. The Arabs had significant manpower and far greater firepower and air forces. The Jews had nothing comparable. Lacking defense in depth, the Jews could not afford to give ground on any of their four fronts. Let's listen to the inimitable voice of the famous historical scholar Sir Martin Gilbert from the Birth of a Nation documentary from the History Channel. On May the 15th, Egyptian Spitfires attacked Tel Aviv. Damage on the first day of all-out war was considerable. One Spitfire was shot down. The Arabs had shown that their fighter planes had a long reach right into the Jewish population centers. Military opinion was fairly unanimous, but the state could not survive. Field Marshal Montgomery, who had commanded the victorious Allied armies in North Africa and Northern Europe, gave us his opinion the state of Israel would be defeated within two weeks. The Arabs threatened Israel on every front. To the south, the Egyptian army prepared a full-scale attack on Tel Aviv and Jerusalem. In the center, the Jordanian Arab Legion was already in Jerusalem and now reinforced its troops. They were joined by the Iraqi army. To the north, both the Syrian and Lebanese armies prepared for invasion. The greatest Jewish resource was the dedication of their troops. Yigal Yadin, a graduate student in archaeology, was typical of Haganah commanders for having a career of secret maneuvers and operations against both Arab guerrillas and British military installations in Palestine. He demonstrated flair and imagination 
and he rose swiftly through the ranks, became the Haganah chief of planning officer at the end of the mandate, and then assumed command of the Jewish Defense Forces. He was 30 years old when he assumed this responsibility, and none of his brigade commanders were any older or less experienced in underground operations. To this very day, the Israeli chief of staff and the chief of staff are so much younger than any other comparable army. In Israel, the chiefs of staff are usually in their 40s, maybe, maybe 50s, and there's no gray hair. Compare this to the chief of staffs of the American army. Everyone has silver hair, and most every one of them are septuagenarians. The 30,000 troops represented the full complement of Jewish fighting strength that had to be very thoroughly and carefully divided into four different fronts. In ensuing weeks, hundreds of recruits would be pressed into service, some directly off the boats. But on May 14th, Jewish manpower resources were still critically low. So was the supply of weapons. Quantities of arms had been acquired in Europe, but the British refused to allow the unloading of these cargoes until the mandate ended. It was only now that the arms-producing machinery, formerly disguised as textile equipment, could be assembled for the manufacture of grease guns. Lubricants are very important components in weapon manufacture and grenades. The Arabs converged from all sides, as the kings and generals video details. Egypt possessed the most extensive military establishment in the region, which had also been supplied and trained by Britain. Their ground forces were organized into three infantry brigades, one tank brigade comprised of 50 tanks, and three artillery battalions armed with 65 howitzer artillery pieces. In the air, Egypt could field five squadrons of 18 fighting aircraft each and one transport squadron. Iraq appeared similarly powerful on the surface, but only sent 3,000 men in the initial attack. The bulk of Iraqi ground forces were structured in three divisions, two infantry and one training division, supported by an armoured battalion of 15 to 20 tanks and 70 to 80 artillery pieces. The Iraqi Air Force consisted of 80 aircraft overall, but only half of these were fully operational and combat ready. In addition, the relatively elite Arab Legion of Transjordan supplied 4,500 well-trained British-led soldiers. 3,000 more came from Lebanon, 3,000 from Syria, and a token contingent from Saudi Arabia. In comparison to the efforts of their Arab enemies, the Israelis had mobilized almost their entire resource base and able-bodied population for the conflict having, according to Ben-Gurion's diary, 29,677 troops at the outbreak of the war. Israel had only three Sherman tanks at the start of the conflict. On the southern front, Egyptian forces launched thrusts across the border from eastern Sinai in a three-pronged assault. The Egyptian command, under the authority of General Ahmed Ali al-Mawawi, believed it necessary to capture a number of strong points in order to secure the rear lines. To this end, forces were committed to assault and capture a number of Jewish communities in the northern Negev region, known plurally as Kibbutzim. A Syrian column of 200 armored vehicles, including 45 tanks, moved toward the southern tip of Lake Galilee. The targets were the cluster of Jewish settlements on both sides of the Jordan River. Several of these were overrun, and the column then proceeded to attack the Ganya, the oldest kibbutz in Palestine. Without artillery, 
the Jewish forces were helpless to block the Syrian advance. Until then, the only heavy weapons they had had been unloaded in Haifa, were just four howitzers of the type used by the French army in the Franco-Prussian War of 1870. Two of these ancient field pieces were promptly dismantled and rushed to the Ganya. They were called Napoleonkas. The local commander, his name was Moshe Dayan. His father helped to found the settlements of that region, and Dayan had these ancient weapons reassembled at the very moment that the first Syrian tanks rumbled through the kibbutz perimeter, and they scored a hit on the first tank. Had the Syrians known that the two obsolete weapons represented half of the arsenal of the Jewish field guns in Palestine, they surely would have pressed on with the attack. Instead, the armored vehicles swung around in their tracks, headed back home, and never returned. By May 23rd, the Syrians had withdrawn from the Jordan Valley. The news of the successful defense of the Ganya spread rapidly and greatly encouraged the, Jewish, the Jews by proving that the settlements could hold out against attack by regular Arab forces. Iraqi forces were centered around Jenin. A Jewish frontal attack on Jenin was beaten back by Iraqi reinforcements. There was a second Jewish effort, and that failed as well just two days later. Remarkably, the Iraqis were unwilling to counterattack. From then on until the truce, they simply held their position. For the Iraqis, the offensive phase of the operation was over. Had they only continued their offensive from the first days of the war, they'd have surely cut the newborn Jewish state of Israel in half. Enthusiasm for battle was lacking among the Iraqi peasant conscripts. There were instances when the Jews found dead Iraqi gunners chained to their weapons. It is easy to read through the history books, and I certainly studied my fair share, and see the Arab armies were undermotivated, poorly led, ignorant, lack strategic analysis, were not united, and still, with all these components, you can totally fail to see the manifest hand of God in the War of Independence. This is always a problem when it comes to warfare, when explanations are offered and the unmistakable godly miracles are ignored. In my humble opinion, that is why Hanukkah celebrates two miracles. Factually, and certainly halachically, the miracle of the oil burning for eight days when it was just one day's worth of oil was not a big deal, as it had no impact on lives. But it could not be explained away as anything other than a miracle. However, ay 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 the defeat of the Greek Syrians, the mightiest army unearthed by a band of undernourished, untrained yeshiva students, was an enormous miracle. But it could and has been explained and rationalized as the efficaciousness of guerrilla warfare. But these yeshiva students were outnumbered, outgunned, outspeared, outelephanted. The mind can somehow still yet fathom the victory as a natural outcome of warfare. But oil for one day burning for eight days, why, that's a miracle. It is very dramatic to see on a map how armies were pouring in from different directions and routes from Syria, Jordan, Iraqi forces as well, and up from Egypt. Israel had remarkable determination and heroism and undeniably miracles. On the east, the Jordanian army, which was the most elite, it was British trained and British armed, 
But it was started at the Mandelbaum Gate, which divided East and West Jerusalem, by the Home Front Army, not the best soldiers without military skills or weaponry, accompanied by the Youth Corps that were too young to fight. But they somehow managed to stop the well-trained and equipped and disciplined Jordanian Legion. In the South, is always attacked by the largest and potentially most formidable of the Arab forces, the Egyptian army. On May the 19th, the Egyptians attacked here at Yad Mordechai, south of Tel Aviv. The defenders faced infantry, tanks, artillery, and aircraft. On the second day of the battle, 18 men were killed. On the third day, the kibbutz signaled, the men's morale is sinking, they approach exhaustion. Advancing along the coast to threaten Tel Aviv, the Egyptians were halted at kibbutz Yad Mordechai, named after Mordechai Analevich, who was the one who led the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising, and populated by ghetto fighters, these kibbutzniks managed to hold out against the main Egyptian thrust for five days, inflicting very heavy casualties and buying time for Tel Aviv and other northern settlements and those on the coastal area to prepare their defenses against the Egyptian onslaught. The five days gained by the defenders of Yad Mordechai were crucial for Israel's survival. The Egyptians believed that conquering Yad Mordechai constituted a great victory. Their army prepared a propaganda film to boast of the achievement. It was mostly simulated. The greatest danger to Israel was in the first days of fighting, when she still depended upon the meager store of arms illegally imported or acquired during the mandate. Every day that Israel now held out was one more day that Israel, now a state recognized by the superpowers, could freely import new and greatly superior weapons, primarily from the Soviet bloc, since there was a Western embargo covering the region. Haganah agents have been buying weapons even before the end of the mandate, and they are now coming in fast and furious. The Egyptian Air Force commanded the skies up until then bombing Tel Aviv and other Jewish centers, and an Egyptian brigade with 500 vehicles was moving north. But on May 29, the first Israeli fighter planes arrived, Fort Messerschmitts, and they were immediately pressed into service. They attacked the Egyptian column, and although not much material damage was done, the Egyptian advance was halted at what is now called the port town of Ashdod. The Egyptian troops, who did not even know where they were, some, and for all I know, this could have been a sizable number, thought that they were carrying out exercises at a maneuver ground in Egypt that was used for training. These troops were very shaken by the fierce resistance at Yad Mordechai and the appearance of Israeli fighter planes. This caused them to simply dig in and not advance. We've reached a juncture where it pays to stop now, and we'll begin next time with one of the battles and one of the, one of the great heroes of Israel's War of Independence. For now, thank you for listening and thank you, Maddie and Alex Drucker, for production and engineering assistance. Please be kind enough to recommend this podcast to your friends, to your family, and to your associates. They will thank you for the recommendation. Giving a five-star review also helps. Thanks for listening to Teller from Jerusalem, where this series takes an intelligent and thought-provoking look at the past in order to acquire a perspective on the present. Spread knowledge by giving us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe. 
Join us next time for a brand new episode, and be sure to visit telefromjerusalem.com where you can find more details about the show and other useful information. Check out the site store, and just by inserting TFJ code, you receive an additional 10% discount off the already very reduced prices of all Hanoch Tele products, books, lectures, and documentaries. And remember, don't forget, you can get Tele from Jerusalem on any podcast platform or go to telefromjerusalem.com. 